You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together, so let's get to it. This week's episode, Flop Bet Sizing, Part 3 of 3. Hey, Dale, how's it going this week? It's going okay, BJ. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Things are looking up this week. I feel so much less stress. I've been keeping something quiet for the past few weeks. I have a new job, and I put in my two-week notice with my old company just this past Friday. And the great thing is, I'm in a position where I am running toward an opportunity. I'm not running away from a bad situation. And I absolutely love that. I want to maintain the best relationships as possible with my current employer and my current co-workers. I'm going for a better opportunity. It works better for our family. It's a great fit for work-life balance. And I feel so much less stressed that I can actually talk about it now. I've actually had this position in my pocket for about five or six weeks. But I haven't been able to tell anybody because of the processing that has to go on behind the scenes. And I think by doing that, it has made the rest of my life so much better. I played golf yesterday. I shot five over par for nine holes, which in my book, I would say is fantastic golf. And I had an amazingly hilarious story at poker today. We had just done a podcast last week where we discussed maximizing equity versus maximizing your EV. And I had a laugh at this. We tweeted about this. If you follow us on Twitter at TBSTB show, the blind stealing the blind show, I posted this meme. Like we've been posting poker memes every day on our Twitter channel. So under the gun limps in. We're playing 1-3. Middle position calls. I raise to 15 with pocket 10s. Under the gun, jams all in for $450. It's a little bit of an overbet, I would say. The rest of us fold. And he gleefully tables over aces. And he says, oh, my aces always get cracked. I'm totally happy just taking, what was it, $21 down. And I'm laughing my butt off on the inside because this is ridiculous. I mean, thank you, sir, for saving me a ton of money because he probably could have gotten at least one or two more streets of value from me. So that's fantastic. How are you doing? What's what's going on with you? One of the things that's going on with me is that my son is coming home. I have two sons and one of them has severe schizophrenia and he's been in a program that's supposed to help him develop some skills, life skills. And he's coming home. We don't know exactly when he's coming home. So we're trying to set things up. He He's 21, about to be 22 in January. So we're trying to set things up for him to have some success. And that's a little stressful, but it's also, uh, it can be happy at moments too. And so we're trying to not just realize our equity in that situation, but maximize our EV for happiness. Other than that, I'm still grinding online, trying some different stuff, trying to take in, uh, maximize my EV. And that's what we had talked about last week though. Right. And where we last left off, We had introduced a bet sizing framework, but the conversation last week got too heady. We got very detailed into multi-way pots, and then we introduced this framework of bet sizing. This week, we want to discuss more about this bet sizing framework. We'll reiterate it. We'll kind of couch it back in the overall theme of this series of podcasts. This will probably be the last in the series on bet sizing, and we'll talk more about the framework, and then we'll introduce some exercises. Fair warning, these exercises are not for the faint of heart. They're not easy. But this is the type of off-table work you really need to put in if you want to bring your game to the next level. So, Dell, should we go ahead and recap what the framework is? Absolutely. 
All right. Now remember, we're solving the problem that most people don't know how much to bet. In previous episodes, we've talked about when to bet and why to bet, but there's this lingering issue of how much to bet. So we're going to introduce this framework of it, and it really involves understanding who the pre-flop aggressor is, who has range advantage on the flop, what the incentives of our range are. We discussed a little bit in detail last week. We want to know who the pre-flop aggressor is because that will dictate who is likely to be capped and who is likely to be uncapped. And our spot where we are most profitable is when we are in position with an uncapped range, applying pressure strategically against players with a capped range. Now it's important to understand who has range advantage because that's going to help us get to the incentive of our actual hand where we understand whether we want to continue to be the aggressor in the hand and realize our equity or do we want to play it a bit more defensively and deny their ability to realize their equity stopping yourself from bleeding chips and losing money is just as valuable from gaining profit a dollar not lost is the equivalent of a dollar gain and then we'll talk about the incentives of the hand and then we'll talk about the exercises let's start with the very basic here as we're applying this framework if we're the aggressor and we have a static flop, the current notion is that we can bet small because we're going to get a high frequency of folds and we're going to be betting at a high frequency on those flops. Before we say that, before we get into that, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you have a hand that is high value and you have an opponent that is going to call larger bets, bet large. Bet small is not always the answer. If you are going to get paid off with your larger bets against the player that you are currently in against, then bet larger. Make them pay as much as they're willing to pay when you have value. That being said, it is a good practice that when we're betting at a high frequency, when we get to those static flops and we have that uncapped range and we know we're going to be betting at a high frequency, then we can certainly bet at a smaller amount, which will allow us to gain a little more EV because we're going to be called more by more bad hands that are going to be forced to fold on more turns and more rivers. And because we have that uncapped range, we can go to that river and we now have a larger percentage of bluffs that are going to work and that's going to protect our high value hands. So there's that thought first, if pre-flop were the aggressor. This is in a two-bet pot. We are in a two-bet pot, and we get to that flop, and we can bet smaller because it's static. We don't expect it to change. Whoever's ahead now is probably going to be ahead on the river. Well, we can bet smaller. But that's not as true when we start talking about three-bet pots and four-bet pots. Because what happens is the more aggression we see pre-flop, the closer those two ranges are to top-end equity because they become a little bit married in their value you might find yourself needing to bet larger or smaller depending on how you view that range hitting your hands or your opponent's hand. Some of that has to do with the likelihood of that opponent folding, the likelihood of that opponent calling your three bet with a wider range. We will revisit three betting at some point, but what I'm trying to say is that the answers aren't always simple. It's not always, I'm going to bet small. If I have a three bet pot and I get to that flop and I got a static flop and I have a value hand, I'm not betting small because my opponent should be calling me at least one bet. I want to maximize that EV. And here's the thing, BJ mentioned, do we want to realize our equity or 
or do we want to deny equity? And the answer to that is real simple. It's not easy, but it is real simple. We're going to take whichever path maximizes our EV. If we're denying equity, it's because we feel that's the path that is going to maximize our EV. If we're realizing equity, if we're just trying to push our equity through to the next street, it's because we want to realize our equity. So when we look at this on static flops, it's pretty simple. We're going to be betting a lot. We're going to be betting anywhere from 70 to 90 percent, depending on our style of play. We're going to be betting a lot. We're going to be betting smaller usually, but not always. And we're going to be expecting to apply more pressure on a turn which leads to another part of this whole process that whatever we do on this street affects what we're going to do on the turn in the river. So that's one type of sizing. What if we're not the pre-flop aggressive? What if we are going to that flop and we have hauled a three bet and now our range is a little condensed and it's capped? When we hit that WAP, if we want to be betting for value on that WAP, if we expect to have to bet for value because we don't expect our opponent to be betting for us, we should be betting larger. There's different levels of betting in it, and there's so much that goes into it. It's not as simple as... I have a cap condensed range, I'm going to bet larger. What if you got an opponent that's going to turn tail and run, but you have a nuttish hand and you want them to stay in there for a couple more streets? Will a smaller bet get them to stay in? Maybe, maybe not, but it's worth trying. We have basic concepts that we're trying to apply when we get to that flop, but none of us knows the exact figure to bet. Even in this situation, we have competing factors that are pulling us towards betting more or betting less. Last week, we discussed the concepts of minimum defense frequency and auto-profiting. I might think that if I bet smaller to keep my opponents in, if they fold more often, I'm auto-profiting. However, that's in opposition to Dell's idea of facing an opponent who is, to use a term we brought in last week, price inelastic. They are willing to call larger bets. If you know that your opponent is willing to call larger bets, even though you might think, okay, they can fold more than 20% of the time, I should bet small. Yes, you may auto profit, but you would not be maximizing your EV because you could extract more value from that opponent by taking a larger bet size. Similarly, when you are betting into the pre-flop aggressor, that's when you may want to size up your bets, like Dell had mentioned, because let's say you called and now you smash that flop, chances are your opponent is going to have connected pretty meaningfully to that flop themselves. You can afford to attack that flop with a larger sizing because they're probably going to stay in it with you having hit that flop themselves. So you can see how we have these competing forces vying for our attention in bet sizing. Some forces want us to bet on the smaller side. Some forces want to bet on the larger side. And there are usually multiple forces at play in the same hand on the same street. That's what makes this difficult. Because of all these competing forces, how do we determine what our sizing is going to be? And I think that there's this thing where you can get paralyzed into this thought. And it's so much easier to just bet half hot. People are still doing this over and over again, half pot, half pot. To be able to think this through and look at it and say, all right, I have these competing factors. Which ones actually apply to this situation at this moment? Board texture is a huge reason. Like we just talked about with static boards and where they're aggressive, we're going to bet smaller. Well, on dynamic boards, we're going to have to bet bigger if we're going to bet at all. And there's going to be times where the answer is going to be don't bet. 
But we're betting bigger because if we have a reason to bet thin boards, it's because we have something of value. We're not betting dynamic boards at, for bluffs. They're not good boards to bluff on. I'm not going to say the bluff frequency is going to be zero, but it's going to be small on those boards. So we can bet bigger because, like you said, we can expect our opponent to have something that hit that board that they're going to come along with. And when we have those boards that fall into that gray area of they're wet, but not really wet, we're also going to be betting a little larger, but probably not as much. At some point, you have to break it down in the portions of your range and what the incentives of that part of your range are. So when you look at it, what hands are you going to bet at different pricing levels? I don't have all the answers, and I know you don't, but when you look at it and you have hands like two pair of better, second set, third set, you have your non-nuttish flush draws, straight draws. I think we can bet these a lot larger if we're going to get value. If our opponent is going to pay for them, let's charge them. So it shouldn't be half pot. And I'll tell you what a lot of people do is they bet half pot because they see there's draws out there. Well, is that the right pricing, though? Because you don't have to bet half pot. 33% heads up is giving your opponent the wrong price to call for the next street. Yeah, it amazes me. I saw this today at the casino. People bet the same amount street to street to street. And the weird thing about that is you are giving me a better price on subsequent streets to chase my draws. The flop comes and you bet half pot because that's what you do. I call. The turn comes and you down bet to like a third pot. You bet $15. Of course I'm going to call. You're giving me an even better price. And then I get there on the river because you priced me in and I got lucky. You bet another $15 on the river. I'm not really sure what that river bet accomplishes. I raise because I know these people aren't folding. They bet, bet, bet. They have something, right? And then they call me and then they bemoan their fate that I sucked out on them. I didn't really suck out. You gave me the right price. One thing you could think of, and this is a tool we can introduce, is just simple math. Understanding pot odds and understanding the price you're giving your opponent. This also means you need to be able to range your opponents fairly well. You could figure out what hands you beat and what hands beat you. You could give yourself a price to chase on future streets. Some people do that. They'll bet small and they'll name their own price. Some players can see through this and will then raise you, so watch out. But at least having a basic understanding of pot size and implied odds and actual odds would help you a long way towards understanding bet sizes. I disagree just a little bit. And please don't edit out the fact that I'm disagreeing with you later on, BJ, because I think that it's important to have a difference of opinion here. I kind of disagree with you on the notion of setting your own price for draws, because okay. when I look at it, if I'm the aggressor and I have a draw, well, that is the perfect time to be betting that just like I had a made hand. It's the perfect disguise for it. It's the only time it's disguised. Your opponents will eventually figure out that you bet your straight draws and your flush draws like that. They'll basically figure it out eventually. But the problem is, it's the same as if you had a hand. It's the same if you already made it. So I think that is one way to go about it. I think trying to set your own price is another way to go about it. And it might work sometimes. I think it gets attacked a lot. That's my opinion. But when we look at this, one of the things I want to address, because we talk, we're talking about draws. I think one of the things that needs to understand is that the whole point of different bet sizings is this. We're maximizing EV, but there's another way to look at it. We're manipulating our opponents into doing what we want them to do. So if we take this from that perspective, we want to manipulate our opponents into what we want them to do. If we think we're ahead, we don't want to draw to fold if we think we're ahead. What we want is we want that draw to pay as much as they're willing to pay to chase. 
We're already ahead. They got to catch up. It's going to be very opponent dependent. You're going to have opponents where when you see a wet board, but you think you're ahead, you're going to start betting bigger because they'll call bigger. And there's going to be other times that if you want to keep them draws in, you're going to have to bet small. It's not cut and dry. The reason this will never be figured out is because of human beings. We can get the math solidly figured out. We know there's 52 cards. That's never going to change. But we don't know every little thing that makes that person across the table tick. And we need to learn that when we sit down. And as we figure that out, that's going to determine a lot of our bet sizing. It's not just as simple as that. And it's going to be determined on whether if I bet here small and I bet big on a turn, are they one of these players that's so turn on us that they're going to fold unless they have it? I can bet smaller and get more because they're going to stick around. Bet sizing is really difficult to talk about. I think we did great last week. And this week, we're struggling a little bit to talk about it because it's not easy. It's not cut and dry. We're definitely getting into the nuance of it. You had mentioned the individual tendencies of the opponent. And I think that gets to a point where you said you disagreed with me. I don't really think you disagreed so much as we were coming at it from a different perspective. If I'm playing against a relatively passive player who I know will not counter-aggress, if I name my own price... They may very well stay with me and I can chase my draws. Whereas if I bet a large price, they might just fold out and I might not maximize my EV because I'm not realizing my equity on future streets. Your perspective is completely valid as well. Your mileage will vary. Not your mileage may vary. Your mileage will vary based on your opponent and their tendencies. Dell had mentioned, are they too turn honest or flop honest? Take that into consideration. Bet smaller, keep them in. And then pump the aggression and bump up that price. Put them to tough decisions later on because they're going to be too honest. And if they call you, even though you know they often fold on the flop or the turn, and they finally call you, it might be a good sign to bail. Is your opponent willing to call anything? If your opponent isn't folding, you probably shouldn't be bluffing. You could extract max value with your made hands, and that's fine. But if they never fold, you probably shouldn't bluff because that's not going to maximize your EV. One thing that I noticed, and this has actually helped my win rate immensely over the past year, is that maximizing EV sometimes means losing the least amount possible. I have done a great job this past year minimizing my losses. Dell mentioned on an earlier podcast, back in COVID, I had this stupid problem where I kept calling three bets and four bets, stupid light, really because of an ego thing. I think we actually talked about that in the podcast. I think that's episode three, ego and poker. Well, I stopped doing that. I stopped losing money and I liked that. But that's the thing. Try to figure out how to maximize EV, which doesn't always mean making the most money, but it could also mean losing the least amount of money. I don't know how many questions we've answered here around this. I think we've actually created far more questions than have been answered when we're looking at this. I think that the biggest goal we have with this podcast is stop automatically betting half pot. Half pot might be the right size. It might be the size that you want to bet because it's going to be max EV. But don't do it automatically. Think about it. Do not go to that flop and just say, I'm always betting this. Take into consideration how strong your range is compared to your opponent. Take into consideration the incentive of your hand. Does your hand want to keep them in or does your hand want to drive them out? Does your range want to drive them out or does your range want to keep them in? What kind of player is your opponent? Are they going to keep paying you off? Can you get them to stack off with bad hands? All this stuff needs to be taken into consideration. So I know that the very first exercise I want anybody doing this 
as a tool, the very first thing I want them to do is stop automatically betting half pot. Absolutely. The other tool that we wanted to introduce is a simple exercise, but it's not easy. This is the second time we've mentioned, I think Dell mentioned it earlier in this show, simple does not necessarily mean easy. It's understanding how your range connects with different flops. That will help you understand the incentives of your range and whether you want to go into an equity realization mode or an equity denial mode. Do you want to pump the brakes or do you want to stomp on the gas? And I will be honest, when I'm not thinking, I tend to gravitate towards a hyper-aggressive style of play where I just smash the gas all day, every day. That's how I used to play before 2020, in fact. Once I learned that my poker car has a brake pedal, it was a game changer. And this is the exercise. Take a deck of cards and deal yourself out a series of flops. Just one flop after another after another. And then notice how your range interacts with those flops. Try to figure out what kind of lines you want to take on those flops. What hands in your range want to see bet? Which ones want to check call, check raise, check fold? If you could figure out how the various portions of your range interact with all those different flops, you'll kind of get a sense of where your fat value or amazing combo draws want to do one thing, your decent value, your decent equity wants to do another. If you have showdown value or weak draws, but you get a good price, maybe you want to check call. And then sometimes you just got to lay it down. Sometimes you just got to fold. Like you got ace, king of spades and the flop comes a whole bunch of undercards with not a single spade and your opponent continues the aggression. How much equity do you really think you have with ace, king of spades? I know it was a pretty hand. Everybody loves it. Sometimes you got to let those good hands go. I think those are the tools we want. Probably at some point, we need to do an episode on how to develop a well-constructed range because honestly, that's going to be different for each person. My well-constructed range is going to be different from Dell's well-constructed range, different from anybody else on the street because of our history, our experiences, our ability to pick up dynamic tells at the table, our financial resources, the amount of time we have to study, a whole bunch of factors come into developing a well-constructed range. And it seems like even though I think this is episode 15 or 16, it seems like over half the episodes we've done, we've made some reference to, well, you know, it all starts with a well-constructed range. Yeah, I, I can promise you that we will be doing that series soon. I want to say one thing. BJ said deal out cards. I will say this, that that is a great exercise. I would say that if you can do that exercise on Flopzilla or Poker Cruncher or even Equilab, you will find that the information that it gives you, take your range, set up an imaginary opponent's range and, and run those scenarios. It will give you all the numbers of how often that range, your opponent's range is hitting. And you do that work. I can tell you right now, BJ did this work over and over and over again. And now BJ is just a monster at the table. So I can promise you, if you do this work, it changes your game and will help you. Like he said, it will help you determine what the incentives of different portions of your range are and how you want to move forward onto the turn and onto the river. I think that's all I have for today, BJ. How about you? Yeah, those are excellent points. I do recommend using Flopzilla or Equilab because the numbers will surprise you. You get much better feedback by doing those exercises using Flopzilla and Equilab because the numbers that you see will help reinforce the idea that this is either a good decision or a bad decision. 
if you just deal out flops like I mentioned with a deck of cards, you won't be able to simulate the range of a fictitious opponent. And that's a real that's a real game changer there. So thank you for bringing that up. If you're listening to us, there's literally no reason not to have Equilab because it's free, unless you don't have a computer, but it's free. I don't know the cost on Poker Cruncher. I do know that cost on Flopzilla is $35 and it'll be the best $35 you invest in your poker. At 1-3, 30 bucks is 10 big blinds. At 2-5, it's six big blinds. You are likely to lose more than 10 big blinds in just a single pot. It's well worth the price. And by the way, not a sponsor. They don't sponsor the show. We're just... Well, well, you can get on that. You you can be our marketing guy. All right. I think that's all I got, Dale. So thanks a lot for a great topic. I think we can wrap a bow on this and call our series on bet sizing done. You think maybe, so? Maybe. Maybe. Oh, maybe. I think that at some point we're going to have to visit the Turnin River. But we're good for today. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Dale. Have a good one. Bye. And until next week, this is The Blind Stealing the Blinds. Like what you heard? Head over to anchor.fm slash theblindstealingtheblind to continue the conversation and join us on the socials. While you're there, you can also support the show. One blind per month is all we ask. 